This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Among adolescents, complaints regarding fatigue are relatively common, and it's been assumed to be associated with the hormonal changes of puberty, the various social conflicts common in adolescence, and a variety of educational expectations. At times, fatigue becomes chronic and may be accompanied by physical symptoms, including mood disorders, headaches, musculoskeletal pains, and a variety of GI symptoms. When chronic fatigue in adolescence has been investigated, no single causal factor has been found, and it's very likely to be multifactorial. The topic for today's podcast is chronic fatigue in adolescence, and we'll discuss this with our guest, Dr. Philip Fisher from the Department of Pediatrics at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Phil, thank you for joining me today. This is an interesting topic. As a geriatrician, I didn't know much about this, but it sounds like it's a significant problem. How common is this? Well, thanks, Daryl. It is indeed a big problem. Lots of parents assume that being tired is part of being a teenager. But if we look at actual bothersome symptomatic fatigue, there are good data from prior to the COVID pandemic suggesting that nearly a third of early adolescent girls are bothered by fatigue at least two mornings a week. There are some other data that would suggest that around one out of five adolescents have bothersome fatigue that impacts their life and has been lasting for more than three months. And there are data from the United Kingdom suggesting that one to 2% of adolescents are absolutely disabled because of chronic fatigue. So whether it's mild fatigue in a third or bothersome fatigue in a fifth or disabling fatigue in the one or 2%, lots of teenagers are tired and it's a real problem. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the uh, pandemic. Did that have any influence on this? Is it better? Is it worse or no effect? Sadly, it did. Perhaps related to social isolation, perhaps related to alter sleep schedules and less activity physically, it seems that chronic fatigue has become a lot more common. Certainly, long COVID is related to chronic fatigue, but even without a specific COVID change, the lifestyle changes of the pandemic seem to have left us with a lot more tired teenagers. Well, the word fatigue is, is kind of like the complaint of dizziness. It means different things to different people. What are we talking about? Tiredness, sleepiness, lack of energy, all of the above? Probably, yes, all of the above. To some, tiredness or fatigue just means they're feeling sleepy. And some of those kids just need to get more sleep. But a lot of the patients with chronic fatigue don't have so much sleepiness as they just have a lack of energy. Their body feels heavy. They feel like they just can't do much. So I distinguish with the adolescents when I'm talking to them between sleepy tired and no energy tired. Mm -hmm. And most chronic fatigue is actually a lack of energy as opposed to sleepiness. And how does this chronic fatigue interact or interfere with their life? That's tough. Some just feel bad. Some get grumpy when they're tired. But for others, they're so non-energetic that they can't do things. So they find it hard to engage socially. They find it hard to get involved in athletic activities. And for many, they don't even go to school regularly or they're late to start school in the morning. 
So there are definite social and academic problems as kids get more and more tired and it lasts for longer and longer. Some of these symptoms sound very much like they could lead to depression. Is that a concern? Yeah, definitely it is. A lot of the physical reasons that people get chronically tired relate to neurotransmitters. And some of the neurotransmitters that relate to energy and nervous system function are the same neurotransmitters that relate to depression and anxiety. When we look at our patients with chronic fatigue, about 30% of them are either struggling with anxiety or depression or both. And I think it's because of the interacting chemicals. Many of them did not have anxiety or depression before they developed fatigue, but as they've become tired, either because of neurotransmitters or life changes, many of them do get depressed or anxious, and the symptoms often do overlap. Is there any way to predict who this is going to happen to? Are there any <laughs> risk factors or is there a family history of a mental health disorder? Be nice if we could predict. Two things I could say to that. One, some studies from Europe showed that there seemed to be a link between mother and daughter symptoms for teenage girls with chronic fatigue. They suggested that meant it was maternally inherited through the mitochondrial genes. I wonder though if some of it might be that girls that had some tiredness learned from their mothers how to react to it and mothers that were bothered by fatigue tended to accidentally train their daughters to be bothered by fatigue. The other prediction though is that of patients that get disabled with chronic fatigue, especially those with problems of the involuntary nervous system, they tend to be superstar teenagers. They tend to be the high achievers that are involved in everything and excelling with everything. So we do see some hints in the chemical makeup of being a high achiever, and yet we don't want to prevent that by telling people not to be motivated and not to be high achievers. Let's turn to the causes of this. Start with sleep. Is there evidence that teenagers don't get enough sleep? There certainly is. The best studies we know would suggest that the average adolescent needs about nine hours of sleep a night. We also know that the average American teenager gets about seven or seven and a half hours of sleep a night. That means most teenagers are sleep deprived. And for many, they get away with it and they might try to catch up on the weekend. But once somebody starts getting tired, they start having real troubles with fatigue, then it's a downward spiral and it keeps getting worse. So clearly American teenagers tend to not get enough sleep. And for some, that's the only trouble. For others, that's an aggravating problem that makes their chronic fatigue worse. Mm -hmm. I recall, this has probably been about five, 10 years ago, where there was some talk about changing the school starting <laughs> times in that the teens tended to start the earliest and they tend to have a different sleep-wake cycle than other kids. Is that true? Is there any validity no. to that? Yeah, there is some truth in that. And it's been a controversial topic in terms of how to adjust to that. It does seem that teenagers have some shifts in their day-night, nocturnal, diurnal, the rhythm of life. And so they tend to be more the late go-to-betters, the night owls that stay up late and find it hard to get up in the morning. How much of that is just learned habit and how much of that is actually a hormonal or adolescent physical change, we don't know. 
but clearly most teenagers tend to want to go to bed late and then sleep in until after they would need to be off to the bus or off to school in the morning. So there have been some school districts around the country that have changed the teenage start time so that teenagers can go to school later. It's not clear to me that that really makes a difference for the teenagers and that they do better, but data would show. On the other hand, that sometimes leaves the kindergartners going to school early to keep the balance, and that's not necessarily without complication either. Right. What role has social media played? I can picture <laughs> many teens staying up till all hours interacting with their friends online. Is this contributing? I think it's a twofold problem. Number one, people have this FOMO, fear of missing out. And so they don't want to put the phone down. So they keep their mind going and keep engaged and keep thinking about things at the time when they should be tuning out, letting their mind and body relax to get ready for sleep. The other issue is that they're often looking at their phones with the light on the phone screen, stimulating their brain. Part of going to sleep is that cycle of turning the brain off. Darkness helps that. So looking at a lit screen makes people tend to stay up longer. So partly it's the distraction and the mental stimulation keeping them going, making it hard to sleep. Part of it's the influence of light on melatonin, making them stay up later and having a hard time falling asleep. So one of the things that it's easy to tell patients is turn your phone off at nine o'clock. One of the things that's very hard for teenagers to do is actually to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we've known for a long time that the teens are kind of a tumultuous time in their life. How do teens adjust to the stresses of their everyday life related to adolescence? That's a challenge. I think it's much more difficult to be a teenager now than it was when we were going through those years with all the societal and social pressures, with all the technology. But still the main job of a teenager is the same. Teenagers need to get a sense of who they are and develop their independent identity. And then they need a sense of autonomy as they're growing to release themselves from childhood and parental influence to become independent adults. So as they're seeking for identity and independence, it's the same process a teen goes through, but there's such a heavy load of stimulation these days that it makes it very difficult for teens. And then when they're fighting a physical problem such as fatigue, it's easy for the body just to give out and struggle with that. But the teenage challenges are very real. They're still present like they ever were but it seems that they're complicated by all the stimulation and all the options and all the pressures that kids are facing these days. Mm -hmm. There are also some specific medical issues that we need to consider as well. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, certainly any child that's tired and tired enough to see a doctor for it probably needs help with all the sleep and the lifestyle changes. But I think as physicians, we also need to be looking for other problems. When we surveyed and looked at, with some data at our adolescents with chronic fatigue at the Mayo Clinic, we found that about half of them were iron deficient. They weren't anemic, but they had low ferritin levels. And with a ferritin level of less than 20 nanograms per deciliter, their fatigue seemed to be aggravated. So if we see an adolescent with chronic fatigue, we need to wonder about iron deficiency, and we should probably include a ferritin in our evaluation 
and then be ready to give iron supplements if the ferritin level is lower than 20. These patients mostly young girls that related to heavy menses or? Uh, not necessarily. Clearly the anemia and iron deficiency is more common in girls, but even the boys with chronic fatigue were more likely to be iron deficient. So it is gender related to some degree, but not completely. So yeah, especially in girls, we need to think about iron. And of course, there are other issues. For reasons nobody's fully explained, adolescents with chronic fatigue tend to be low on vitamin D. 30% of our chronic fatigue adolescents have hypovitaminosis D. And it could be some of that is they're too tired to go out in the sunshine. But some of it could be that something about vitamin D might be having some mysterious non-skeletal effects. So for chronic fatigue in a teenager, we'd think about checking vitamin D, we'd think about checking iron, and then, of course, we have to think about the other common medical problems that show up in the teenage years. More common in girls would be hypothyroidism, but anybody could develop Hashimoto's and become hypothyroid. And then the less common problems that still can happen could be adrenal insufficiency or autoimmune hepatitis or some chronic renal problems. So I think we owe it to patients with chronic fatigue to make sure they're not missing the subtle things iron deficiency and vitamin D deficiency, and also that we're not missing some of the more common medical problems that might relate to thyroid or liver or kidney function, or even celiac disease that can give fatigue without many GI symptoms. Hmm. Is it thought that this could also be a complication of a COVID infection? The whole COVID issue is a big deal. And I think one of the benefits, it's hard to say there's a benefit to the COVID pandemic, but one of the things that came out of the COVID pandemic was realizing that long COVID, those that are chronically tired after having COVID, sometimes are just like the chronic fatigue patients we saw pre-COVID. But instead of having influenza or some other infection or an injury trigger their chronic fatigue, it's COVID that's doing it. So some of what we've learned in the last couple of decades about dealing with chronic fatigue is very useful for those that are dealing with chronic post-COVID fatigue or long COVID. So clearly COVID has led to more chronic fatigue for societal and lifestyle issues, but also those that had COVID are more likely to get long COVID and chronic fatigue is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. So COVID made it worse, but it gives us at least the opportunity to use some of what we were learning in past years about chronic fatigue. Yeah. Do you see the postural orthostatic hypotension in teens? Yes. And that's actually a big deal. As we look at our patients with chronic fatigue, at least half to two thirds of them, these are the patients that come to us to a referral medical center, but at least half to two thirds of them have signs of autonomic dysfunction. We know the involuntary nervous system, the autonomic system is supposed to help blood flow intestinal flow and temperature regulation. So many teenagers will have not just their fatigue, but they might have dizziness related to altered blood flow in their upright. They might have dysmotility with abdominal discomfort or nausea, and they often feel too hot or too cold. Those sorts of symptoms are clues that we need to check their heart rate, lying down, resting, and then standing up still. And about half of our chronic fatigue patients actually have signs of autonomic dysfunction. And many of them do have an excessive heart rate change when they stand up and they qualify for a diagnosis of postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Mm -hmm. 
Well, family physicians and pediatricians will often see these young adults. As primary care providers, what should we be asking them? What's, what's important in the medical history? Yeah, that's a great question. And indeed, it's even more challenging when people only have a few minutes to talk to their patients. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to do the things we've talked about. See about sleep and if they're missing sleep. Think about screening for the medical issues. But in our history, we need to ask about dizziness. We need to ask about abdominal discomfort and nausea. We need to ask about hot and cold temperature irregularities and them feeling different than others. And when we find those issues, we should make sure that we check their standing and supine heart rates to see if there's an excessive difference, more than a 40 beat per minute change in adolescence. And then when we find that, that's great for us because we know what to do. We can do some specific treatments in addition to all the chronic fatigue treatment that can be useful for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So keying into those other symptoms of dizziness and nausea can help us sometimes find concern for POTS. And then if we find POTS, then we're actually going to be able to do other things to help the patients. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned the uh, orthostatic blood pressure and heart rate. Are there any other physical exam findings that might be helpful or is the physical not that useful to assess this? The physical exam is mostly useful to rule out other things, but in fact, it's going to be that orthostatic heart rate change that's going to be the key for thinking about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which then might open the door to some medication management. How about blood tests? Any laboratory tests of, of value? I usually do screen things in chronic fatigue patients. So I'd be doing a ferritin level, a CBC to make sure there's no anemia, vitamin D level, usually a TSH to look for thyroid dysfunction. If there's concern for by the rest of the history for adrenal problems, I'd check a cortisol. And then sometimes I'll get a liver enzyme and a creatinine for kidney function. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, we might not do much else, but at least thinking of those things. And then if we found out something in history or physical, we'd look farther. And we should probably also mention sleep evaluation. Some kids actually have restless leg syndrome. So we'd need to be getting history about those sorts of problems. And again, iron deficiency goes with restless leg syndrome. Sleep apnea can show up. So I think it's the history that's going to develop a thought process in us that's going to help us decide what blood tests we need or if we need another sleep evaluation. Okay. Well, let's talk about management. How can we help our adolescents with chronic fatigue? Yeah, I look at that as a layered or a staged answer. I think everybody with fatigue needs to make sure their lifestyle is in balance. That means they need enough good quality sleep going for that average of nine hours. If a teenager is sleeping in more on the weekends when they don't have to get up than during the week, that means their body is trying to pay back a debt of sleep. And so we need to be starting with our tired teenagers to make sure they're getting adequate sleep and good quality sleep, making sure there isn't restless leg syndrome or something else. So getting good sleep is a big part of it. Second thing I would say is counterintuitive because it goes against what the teen's body is saying, but they need to stay active. Tired teens don't feel like doing much, but in fact, exercise and activity are critical to recovery. So we need to get them up and active. They need to be socially active. We need to keep them in school. We need to keep them doing normal daily activities. So I would have layers, adequate sleep, 
good activity, daily exercise. And if we're concerned about autonomic dysfunction, then we're gonna to need to make sure they're maximizing their blood volume, which would mean increasing fluid intake. And if there are heart rate changes, even increasing salt intake to build their blood volume. So fluids, salt, exercise, adequate sleep, regular meal schedules, regular school and social activities are important. And then we have to think about the mental part of it. Even if they weren't depressed or anxious beforehand, once they're tired, they're at risk. And often strategies related to cognitive behavioral therapy can help. So at the foundation of the building block of management, I'd start with lifestyle, sleep, schedules, activity, and then the mental aspects of cognitive behavioral therapy. Then for those, then we, when we find a problem, whether it's iron deficiency or thyroid problems, of course, we're gonna treat that problem um, so that's the second layer up is treating the medical issues that we find are going on, whether those issues are causing like thyroid disease or contributing like iron deficiency to the problem. And then the next layer up above that would be if they do have autonomic dysfunction with excessive postural tachycardia, that is if they do qualify for a diagnosis of POTS, then we would think about some medication to help with that. And that could be useful for them as well. So how useful is treatment? Can we help these teens? And, and what's their long-term prognosis? What are they like in adulthood? That's one of the most exciting things, I think, about understanding chronic fatigue, understanding the treatment we've mentioned, is that teenagers actually can get better. By data we have of thousands of patients we've followed and hundreds that we've surveyed from Mayo Clinic, we've seen that over 90% can recover and return to a good active life. Um, so they might still have some symptoms, but be able to leave a, lead a good productive life. But it takes time. Um, chronic fatigue might take months or even a couple of years to get better, but the vast majority can look forward to a good productive adult life with reasonably good health. So the outlook is good, which gives us even more enthusiasm to get aggressive about all those lifestyle and other changes to help them get through all this. Well, Phil, you've given us a lot of useful information on the problem of chronic fatigue in adolescence. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? Yeah, and I think that's important because it'll help us stay focused if we're thinking of things like that. I guess the first thing I would say is that chronic fatigue is real and it's miserable. Patients are not faking it. It's not all in their head. And many patients with chronic fatigue have been told by other care providers that it is their fault or they're imagining it. So I think the first thing we need is empathy. We need to let them know it's not in their head. It's not all their fault. We need to feel with them because it is miserable and it is real. Beyond empathy, I think we need to put some expertise into this. We need to think about the causes and contributors to chronic fatigue and make sure we've taken care of that. Thirdly, I'd say we should summarize with encouragement. Beyond the empathy and expertise, we need to encourage these teens that the outlook is good, but it's gonna take hard work, but we can mobilize a team of family, school, and medical people that can help them get through this as they look toward a good productive life. Well, Phil, I have learned from a source that uh, you have written a book on this topic. Is, is that correct? <laughs> that is true. We titled it Tired Teens, and it was published almost two years ago by Mayo Clinic Press. 
Okay. So if our listeners are interested in learning more about it, that would be an excellent resource. Well, we've been discussing chronic fatigue in adolescence with Dr. Philip Fisher, a pediatrician from the Mayo Clinic. Phil, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. This was just fascinating. Thank you, Daryl, and thanks, everybody. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.